Hi, and welcome back to Chronicles The Hundred Years' War. Today we're going to be having a look at Chapter 15, how that King Robert de Bruce of Scotland defied King Edward. It's going to be our first step into the foray of Edward III's realm. We're now looking at a time beyond Edward II, and we're going to start quickly putting that behind us as we move forward. That's not really unexpected. Obviously, the time of Edward II is considered, you know, somewhat shameful or less than ideal. And so a book that is supposed to sort of glorify Edward III might include it for historical reasons and also as sort of a point of comparison. That's how bad things were. Things are now much better. But it's largely something to be addressed and then quickly moved on from. Let's go ahead and get into that chapter and see what it has to say. After that, Sir John of Hinault was departed from King Edward. He and the Queen, his mother, governed the realm by counsel of the Earl of Kent, uncle to the King, and by the counsel of Sir Roger Mortimer, who had great lands in England, to the sum of £700 of rent yearly. And they were both banished and chased out of England with the Queen, as ye have heard before. Also, they used much after the counsel of Sir Thomas Wake, and by the advice of other who were reputed for the most sagest of the realm. Howbeit there were some had envy thereat, the which never died in England, and also it reigneth and will reign in diverse other countries. Thus passed forth the winter and the Lent season till Easter, and then the king and the queen and all the realm was in good peace all this season. Then it so fortuned that King Robert of Scotland, who had been right hardy and had suffered much travail against Englishmen, and oftentimes he had been chased and discomfited in the time of King Edward I, grandfather to this young King Edward III. He was as then become very old and ancient, and sick, as it was said, of the great evil and malady. This great malady is commonly explained to mean leprosy, but there's a note here that it's possible epilepsy was what was being referred to. When he knew the adventures that was fallen in England, how that the old King Edward II was taken and deposed down from his regally and his crown, and certain of his counsellors beheaded and put to destruction, as ye have heard before, then he bethought him that he would defy the young King Edward III, because he was young, and that the barons of the realm were not all of one accord, as it was said. Therefore he thought the better to speed in his purpose to conquer part of England. And so about Easter in the year of our Lord, M-C-C-X-X-V-I-I, he sent his defiance to the young King Edward III and to all the realm, sending them word how that he would enter into the realm of England and brand before him as he had done before time at such season as the discomfiture that was the castle of Stirling whereas the Englishmen received great damage. When the King of England and his council perceived that they were defied, they caused it to be known over all the realm, and commanded that all nobles and all others should be ready apparelled every man after his estate, and they should be by Ascension Day next after at the town of York, standing northward. The king sent much people before to keep the frontiers against Scotland, and sent a great ambassador to Sir John of Hainault, praying him right effectuously that he would help to succour and keep the company with him in his voyage against the Scots, and that he would be with him at the Ascension Day next after at York, with such company as he might get of men of war in those parts. 
When Sir John of Hainault, Lord of Beaumont, heard the king's desire, he sent straight letters and his messages in every place, whereas he thought to recover or attain to have any company of men of war. In Flanders, in Hainault, in Brabant, and in other places, desiring them that in their best apparel for war they would meet him at Wissant, for to go over the sea with him to England. And all such as he sent unto came to him with a glad cheer, and diverse other that heard thereof, in trust to attain to as much honour as they had that were with him in England before at the other voyage. So that by the time the said Lord Bowman was come to Assant, there was ready ships for him and his company, brought out of England. And so they took shipping and passed over the sea and arrived at Dover, and so then ceased not to ride till they had come within three days of Pentecost to the town of York. Whereas the king and the queen his mother and all his lords were with great host carrying the coming of Sir John of Hainault, and had sent many before of them men of arms, archers, and common people for the good towns and villages, and as people resorted, they were coming to be lodged two or three leagues off all about in the country. And on a day thither came Sir John of Hainault and his company, who were right welcome and well received both of the king, of the queen his mother, and of all other barons. And to them was delivered the suburbs of the city to lodge in, and to Sir John of Hainault was delivered an abbey of white monks for him and his household. There came with him out of Hainault the lord of Anheim, who is called Sir Galtier, and Sir Lord Henry d'Antion, and the lord of Fagnol, and Sir Fastres de Rileau, and Sir Robert de Belaylu, and Sir Gulliman de Belaylu his brother, and the lord of Havereth, Chatelaine of Sir Mons, Sir Allard de Brufuel, Sir Michael de Line, Sir John de Montigny the Younger, and his brother Sir Sans de Boussois, and the Lord of Comenges, Sir Percival de Samiris, the Lord of Borio, and the Lord of Fleon. Also of the country of Flanders, there was Sir Hector of Villain, Sir John de Rhodes, Sir Wolfhart de Gesteles, the Lord of Stratton, Sir Gusin de la Moreau, and diverse came thither of the country of Brabant, as the Lord of Duffel, Sir Thierry of Walcourt, Sir Ras de Grez, Sir John de Kesterbrek, Sir John Felisa, Sir Giles de Cotterbury, the three brothers de Halbrecht, Sir Galtier de Holdenberg, and diverse others. Of Hesbegons, there was Sir John Lebel, who, side note, is John Lebel, canon of St. Lambert's in Liege, on whose chronicle the early part of Fossard's history is founded. He was there for an eyewitness of some events of this campaign. Feel free to look him up. And Sir Henry, his brother. Sir Godfrey de la Chapelle, Sir Hugh de Ohe, Sir John de Labine, Sir Lampert de Ophay, Sir Gillick de Herc, and out of Chambrisus and Artois there were some certain knights of their own good wills to advance their bodies, so that Sir John of Hainault had well within his company five hundred men of arms, well apparelled and richly mounted. And after the feast of Pentecost came thither Sir Gulliam de Juliers, who was Duke of Juliers after the decease of his father, and Sir Thierry of Heisberg, who was after Earl of Luz, and with them a right fair rout, and all to keep company with the gentle knight, Sir John of Hainault, Lord Beaumont. So what we're getting here is that first major conflict, first major point of contention that Edward faces is a Scottish attack. 
A couple of things to talk about, a little bit to get into here about what's going on here. It mentions Robert Bruce is king in Scotland and he has reason to have beef with Edward I and to sort of pounce upon what he feels is a weak England. That's pretty reasonable from his part. Scotland has had pretty bad relations with England after Edward I tried to unify the UK. He managed to, I would probably say, pacify Wales rather than conquer it. Wales still sort of remains its own place. It definitely doesn't just roll over and give up, but it does lose independence. It essentially gets broken up into shires and accepts some amount of English rule and barons, and it never really becomes its own independent country again. He tries the same thing with Scotland, and for those of you familiar with the legends of William Wallace, the guy William Wallace is fighting against is Edward I. Edward is ruthless, ambitious, and avaricious. He is very capable as a king as far as these times go. Those are traits that typically go hand in hand with the idea of a warrior king in the Middle Ages. Someone who raises taxes, raises an army, and goes and claims a new part of territory. Edward had participated in crusades. He was one of the the last knightly kings to dedicate part of his life to the cross in that respect. He had fought in numerous conflicts and ultimately he never managed to break Scotland either politically through appointing puppet or weak kings like John Beloyle or just by force of arms as he tried to do. But he managed to do serious damage to Scotland while he was campaigning against it and he had no qualms about killing civilians in that time as well. And so there was significant and very understandable animosity from Scottish to the English and probably vice versa. So definitely it makes sense that sensing a bit of weakness, there's a child king, they've just managed to come out of years of civil war, think that, right, fine, we've been in peace long enough, we've gotten what we can out of Isabella, now that there's a new king, it's time for a new deal, and they're going to pounce on that particular weakness. That being said, England isn't just administered by a young king. He is working, as the Chronicle mentioned, with the Queen, his mother, the Earl of Kent, and Roger Mortimer. It sort of nicely mentions that they're all working together and that we're a fantastic team. From what we can find of the history, and we'll see some of this a little bit later on, Edward wasn't really making all the decisions. He was king in name, but there was a lot of power that was held by Isabella and Roger Mortimer. Roger was a powerful lord in his own right. He was uh, a marcher lord, which meant his lands were in the north of England and they did border Scotland. So obviously this is something he's going to be very keen on. But he had lands that were worth £700 a year. So, having a quick look, for those interested, there is a vague, obviously all monetary policy that goes back this far is going to be vague. You'll never get anything exacting. Guide to pricing and money and income of this period that you can find in Desmond Seward's The Hundred Years' War. It's acceptable as a book. Otherwise, he is a bit of a cheerleader for the English and has some annoying bias in that regard, but the factual information I don't find to be incorrect. 
So let's just read through this appendix note on currency. It is impossible to give even approximate estimates of the purchasing power of late medieval money. We know from the income tax returns of 1436 imposed on incomes of more than 20 pounds that the average income of a nobleman was 865 pounds, of a well-to-do knight 208 pounds, of a lesser knight 60 pounds, of an esquire 24 pounds, and of minor gentry, merchants, yeomen, and important artisans from 15 to 19 pounds. At this date, a good plowman could make perhaps four pounds a year, though before the Black Death he might have made as little as 10 shillings. It's worth noting that the time we're talking about in the Chronicle is before the Black Death. So what information does that give us? Well, it's pretty obvious to see that if, as a capable plowman, I'm making 10 shillings a year, so not even one pound a year, the idea of a nobleman having lands worth 700 pounds per year makes that man fabulously rich. It also helps to shed some light on some of the things we were looking at last week as well, where we mentioned in one of the historical accounts that we had a look at, I believe the Plantagenet specifically, it mentioned that Philippa awarded herself £20,000. And that was nominally to pay off debts and other sort of foreign spending that she had done or that the, the realm needed to pay. But the idea of £20,000 when someone who worked hard for their living in a field made less than a pound a year is immense. It's an incredible amount of money to be spending on anything. And so we are seeing some very, very powerful people surrounding Edward. Now, we haven't gotten any sense from the Chronicle so far that those people totally dominate Edward's decision-making ability like Edward II's favourites did. But Edward II largely gave power to his favourites, while in this case it does seem that the Earl of Kent, who I haven't actually come across as being particularly relevant at the decision-making in this period, though maybe I've missed it, Roger Mortimer and Isabella are people of considerable power. They are big landholders, they wield influence, they wield money, and have some amount of say in what is going on. They are either teaching leadership and rulership to Edward III, or perhaps maybe having a little bit more of an involved go of what's happening there. And so this is a bit of a crux period. Edward is going to have the chance to sort of declare himself and plan to flag as the kind of ruler he wants to be, but there's also a bit of a chance that the kind of ruler he wants to be is not someone he's going to get to be. There is every reason that Isabel and Roger Mortimer will want to be king and queen by their own right. They may feel that Edward III is too young. And so when it comes to war between England and Scotland, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Before we get to that, though, we're going to have to come across chapter 16, the dissension that was between the archers of England and them of Hainault. Let's dive in and have a look at what's happening there. The gentle king of England, the better to feast these strange lords and all their company, held a great court on Trinity Sunday in the Friars, whereas he and the queen his mother were lodged, keeping their house each of them apart. At this feast the king had well five hundred knights and fifteen new were made, and the queen had well in her court sixty ladies and damsels who were there ready to make feast and cheer to Sir John of Hainault and his company. There might have been seen great noblesse in serving plenty of all manner of strange victuals, 
there were ladies and damsels freshly apparelled, ready to have danced if they might have leave. But incontinent after dinner, there began a great fray between some of the grooms and pages of the strangers and of the archers of England who were lodged among them in the said suburbs. And anon all the archers assembled together with their bows and drove the strangers home to their lodging. And the most part of the knights and the masters of them were as then in the king's court. But as soon as they heard tidings of the fray, each drew to their own lodging in great haste such as might enter. And such as could not get in were in great peril for the archers, who were to their number of three thousand, shot fast their arrows, not sparing masters nor valets. And it was thought and supposed that this fray was begun by some of the friends of the Spencers and of the Earl of Arundel's, who were put to death before by the aid of the counsel of Sir John of Hanault, as ye have heard before, who as then was peradventure thought to be somewhat revenged and to set discord in the host. And so the Englishmen that were hosts to these strangers shut fast their doors and windows and would not suffer them to enter into their lodgings. Howbeit some get in the backside and quickly armed them, but they durst not issue out onto the street for fear of the arrows. Then the strangers break out on the backside and break down pales and hedges of gardens, and drew them in a certain plain place and abode their company, till at last there were a hundred and above of men-at-arms and as many unharnessed, such as could not get to their lodgings. And when they were assembled together, they hastened to go and succor their companions, who defended their lodgings in the great street. As they went forth, they passed by the lodgings of the Lord Dienhine, whereas there were great gates before and behind opening into the great street. And the archers of England shot fiercely at the house, and there were many of the Hanalters hurt, and the good knights Fastras de Rolu, Sir Percival Smeries, and Sir Sans de Boussois, these three could not enter into their lodgings to arm them, but they did as valiantly as though they had been armed. They had great levers in their hands, the which they found in a carpenter's yard, with the which they gave such strokes that men durst not approach them. They three beat down that day, with such few company as they had, more than sixty, for they were great and mighty knights. Finally the archers that were at the fray were discomfited and put to chase, and there was dead in the place well to the number of three hundred, and it was said they were all of the bishopric of Lincoln. I trow God nem... I trow God did never give more grace and fortune to any people than as he did to this gentle knight Sir Jonathan Ault and his company, for these English archers intend to do none other but to murder and rob them, for all they were come to serve the king in his business. These strangers were never in so great a peril all the season that they lay, nor were they never after in surety till they were again at Wissant in their own country. For they were fallen in so great hate with all of the archers of the host, that some of the barons and knights of England showed unto the lords of Hnault, giving them warning that the archers and other of the common people were allied together to the number of six thousand to the intent to brand or to kill them in their lodgings either by day or by night. And so they lived on a hard adventure, but each of them promised to help and aid other and to sell dearly their lives or they were slain. So they made many fair ordinances among themselves by good and great advice, whereby they were fain oftentimes to lie in their harnesses by night and in the day to keep their lodgings and to have all their harnesses ready and their horses saddled. Thus continually they were fain to make watch by their constables in the fields and highways about the court and to send scout watchers a mile 
trail off to see ever if any such people were coming to them would as they were informed of to the intent that if their scout watch heard any noise or moving of people drawing to the city ward, then incontinent they should give them knowledge whereby they might sooner gather together each of them under their own banner in a certain place, the which they had advised for the same intent. In this tribulation they abode in the said suburbs by the space of four weeks, and in all the season they durst not go far from their harness nor from their lodgings, saving a certain of the chief lords among them, who went to the court to see the king and his council, who made them right good cheer. For if said evil adventure had not been, they had sojourned there in great ease, for the city and the country about them were right plentiful. For all the time of six weeks, the king and the lords of England were more than sixty thousand men of war lay there. The victuals were never the dearer, for ever they had a penny worth for a good penny, as well as other had before they came here. And there was good wine of Gascon and of Alsace, and of the rhyme and plenty thereof with right good sheep as well of pullen as of other victuals and there was daily brought before their lodgings hay oats and litter whereof they were well served for their horses at a meekly price so that chapter illustrates something important and that is while the chronicle is looking to move past the fact that there might be some discontent in england between previous faction supporters and current faction supporters things hadn't died down maybe as much as they might have hoped to Certainly the fact that the immediate reaction is there's discord between these groups. Obviously it is of the Spencer family trying to sabotage or revenge themselves against the Hinaltas. does make sense to me, but it also highlights the fact that that time really hadn't passed. It was still fresh in people's memories that the Hinaltas had been important as they rightly should be remembered in the removal of the Spencer family and their supporters and the removal of Edward II. There's not too much to talk about about that section. It's just sort of an intermission in what else is going on. It's maybe notable that the Chronicle thought it relevant to point out that the king and his mother were lodged in separate housing. But really, it's about showing virtue for Edward III. Hosting is something that you're supposed to do for guests and pausing, even if you were going to pause anyway. And I suspect if they're waiting for six weeks, it's probably things like the season is bad or whatever other reason they might have. Maybe they're collecting troops still or they're collecting victuals, which by the by is just supplies. It's typically a term for food-based supplies, like food, water, that sort of thing. But also the same for horses or oats and hay and that sort of thing. Victuals is just sort of a group term for those sort of supplies that you need to take with you but they're also you know feasting the king is entertaining these people they're all getting fed and so it's showing they can afford to do this england is a rich country that can supply many 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 days of people just living off the land that things were cheap and plentiful in their country and that they had good imported wines for instance Gascony is in france it's technically owned by england it's part of aquitaine uh, we'll get into that later on, though, but it, it is, you know, French wine that they're bringing across and that everyone's having this wonderful time because Edward can put on a show and a bit of a song and dance for everybody to be well taken care of and not really have to exert themselves or their funds while staying in England. Very good just sort of propaganda. Come see sunny England where there's six weeks of feasts and you can get good wine at a low price. 
I think that's everything before we get into chapter 17. And I'm going to leave that one for next week, largely because chapter 17 is going to be the chapter that starts talking about war with the Scots and how they conduct themselves in war. And then we're going to begin into chapter 18, which is a particularly long chapter that actually covers the King of England in Scotland making his journey against the Scots. And so that one's probably going to have to be broken up into a two-parter. So if you want to find out what happens with war in Scotland and Edward's first foray into warfare in general, join me next week for another episode of Chronicles The Hundred Years' War. See you then.